God, I thank you so much for this group and the gift that they are to Tammy and I and to the body at Sylvania at large. I pray that you continue to to bless them and to cultivate them and grow them up in your grace, that you continue to unify them in Christ. Um, I pray that that we would, um, as a group and as a church, sit at the feet of Jesus day by day, that we would learn of Him who He is and what He's done and rest there, knowing that He is working in us and that He is working through us. I pray that He would work through us in in ways that we don't even imagine now, that because of your greatness and your power, you can do amazing things and do amazing things through your people. God, would you give us a confidence in you and in the power of your Holy Spirit to work through us? And that even though the, the consequences, the potential consequences of doing so may seem daunting, that our, our hope rests and lies in the person and work of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, would you draw us a little closer to him this morning as we go through this next section in Acts. Display the beauty of Jesus for us today. In his name, amen. Amen. All right, we are in Acts. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 23. The last time we were in Acts, we read of the radical transformation of Saul of Tarsus. And at the end of that last discussion, uh, we saw Saul uh, doing something. Ananias had come to lay his hands on him and heal his vision, heal his blindness, and fill him with the Holy Spirit to, to pray that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in in the immediate subsequent text, we see a new man emerge. And how do we we see that new man emerge? What what is displayed there? What does he do? He goes and proclaims Jesus. He immediately goes and proclaims Jesus. There's a little bit of a lag time where he's being ministered to by the other saints and instructed. But he immediately goes and proclaims Christ in Damascus. And he did it boldly. And it says, uh, Luke tells us that he confounded the Jews in Damascus. Incidentally, how would he have done that? How would he have confounded the Jews in Damascus? Did he, did he work among them and hope that they would see that he was a really kind, nice guy and ask him, what's the difference in you and how you know, unkind we are in Damascus? I mean, how did he profoundly... He went to the synagogue and, and what? You say laid it all out on the line. What do you mean? He, he, bre- he opened his mouth, right? He opened his mouth and began talking to them about who Jesus is and what he has done and proving to them, it says proving, using what? Logic. Okay, I'm sure there's some reasoning. Scripture. From the scriptures. Logic from the scripture, we'll go with that. Reasoning from the scripture. 
He knew the Bible. He was bold um, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He demonstrated the content of his heart by opening his mouth and speaking. And then it says at the end of that last passage that we saw in a... In, uh, in verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength. He increased all the more in strength. That's an interesting statement of him, isn't it? I mean, you get the idea that maybe his first attempts at this weren't that great. Maybe the first attempts he did this, he had, oh gosh, I shouldn't have said it this way. Maybe I should say it this way. But he kept doing it. And he's increasing in his presentation. He's increasing in his understanding of the gospel. He's increasing in human interaction and nature and where and who to put his trust in, not his own eloquence, but in the power of the gospel, right? And he's increasing in strength here. Um, he may have made mistakes when he initially started pro proclaiming Christ, but the Holy Spirit was with him and he kept doing it. We work, he would write later, we work because he is working in us. And it got to the point where the Jewish leaders in Damascus just couldn't take it anymore. So let's read in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Uh, we'll stop there for now. It says, when many days had passed, we know later on it's about three years, according to the way they record time. Any part of a year is considered a year, so it could have been a year, uh, two years, or a year and a half, or something along those lines. But he says three years. And um, he also says, later in Galatians 1, that he went to Arabia, the desert in Arabia at that time, uh, during this period in Damascus. The Greek here has the idea in, in, in uh, when many days have passed, the ideas of the days being fulfilled. That sounds pretty poignant, doesn't it? The days were fulfilled, and then they started plotting against him. You have a sense from Luke here that the promise of Jesus at Paul's conversion, that I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake, is, is you're seeing that kind of start to begin here. And as we'll see, he gets just a taste of what is to come. So if you're confounded by the proof that Jesus is the Christ, what's the logical thing to do in response? I think everybody else is doing silencing. <laughs> Seek to stamp it out. Seek to stamp it out. That's the logic of the world, isn't it? We don't like what we hear, so we stand around a circle and point and say, shame, 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 shame. Or we seek to stamp it out in other ways. This is not... Um, Unfamiliar, right? We saw this happen to Stephen. He confounded the Jews in Jerusalem, um, and he is—he uh, is—he was killed. And so that's what they're planning to do to Saul. Incidentally, Saul was also seeking to stamp out Stephen and stamp out the Christians in Jerusalem. Um, they can't find flaw; can't find a flaw in his proof, so they must kill him rather than believe. I think the logical thing would be, yeah, I can't fight this. This is making sense. It's clicking. Rationally, my brain sees how this works in Scripture that I trust. I guess I need to believe. That would be the logical thing to do. The illogical thing, the irrational thing, the emotional thing is to stamp it out, 
is to kill him. And that's what they see them doing here. Does it surprise you the depth of fallen humanity's rebellion against the supremacy of Christ? Does that surprise you? Well, I mean, if you can't argue with the theology, it just proves that yours is bad. <laughs> if, you can't, if you can't argue with the theology, it proves yours is bad. Yeah. Yeah, if, you're, if, if the best argument you have is, well, we just need to kill him, that tells you something. Right, right. I mean, in the context of the scriptures, it's not surprising because we see it all throughout the history of ever. Why do the nations rage? Right? Isn't that the natural response of, uh, of the unregenerate, fallen man? Why do the nations rage? It's irrational. It's crazy. So what's this plot? What's the plot that they have? What are they doing? They're going to jump in by the gate. They're going to jump in by the gate. They're watching the gate. Why do they watch the gate? It's the only way out. Yeah. So they're watching the gate. Um, there's a... There's a... Um, uh, so, uh, Paul recounts this in, uh, I think, 2 Corinthians, where he talks about how the governor of... King Eritreus, I think is his name, uh, was also hunting him at this time. And so some scholars say, well, this may have been a missionary effort that he made in, when he was in Arabia because um, the governor at that time in, uh, of Eritrea was in that area, Arabia. And um, so the idea that you have when you combine those two accounts is inside the gates of Damascus, he's being hunted. And outside the gates of Damascus, he's being hunted. Jews and Gentiles are working together to hunt Saul. So what, is, what do they do? What do they do? They do Mission Impossible stuff. They do Mission Impossible stuff. <laughs> they... They get a spoon, and over several days, they work a hole in the wall. Um, he can't leave the city by the normal route. These guys are focused and intent on killing him, and uh, it's probably actually through an ambush later down the road is what they're looking at, not right at the city. They're looking at ambushing him further down the road. Um, he escapes by being lowered through the wall of the city. Who lowers him? Whose disciples? His disciples. Now that's odd. I mean, he's been in this thing, what, year and a half, two years, three? And he has disciples. Who are they? Where would they have come from? Within the city. city. Through what means? Conversion Conversion by his waiting and being really nice until somebody asks him why he's nice. No, by his bold proclamation of the gospel. He has converts. He has people who are being taught. He was poured into when he was converted, and now he's pouring into others. Notice the pattern. It's very, very logical. As we learn, we pour out, right? So they come from probably converts from the synagogues in Damascus. Um, And he's saved by being lowered in what? A basket. What comes to mind, just if you think about redemptive history, what comes to mind about people being saved in baskets? Moses. Moses. I, that's the first thing I thought of. It's like a Moses thing. Uh, 
Also, being lowered over the city wall has a noble history in, 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 uh, in, the, in biblical. Rahab the harlot lowered the spies. Also, David was lowered over the wall by Micah, his wife, as crazy Saul was hunting him whenever he first escaped. So you have some other, and I don't think necessarily Luke has this in mind as he's writing. He's just telling the story, but I just find it interesting. Yeah. Baskets and and the basket, by the way. Jesus is the basket. Always a good, always no. Um, the basket we have in mind here is not your Easter basket, right? It's not an Easter basket. It's some big wicker thing that they use to, to lower wool and other kinds of goods over the city wall when they're when they're trading. I think, I think it's an interesting. I don't know. It's an interesting theme of. Trusting God, believing God sovereign, but but not uh, but not failing to act. Mm-hmm. And if you think he didn't just sit there and wait when he knew there was a plot to kill him, they they still acted on that knowledge, and still that wasn't a denial of trusting that God right. was in control. Right. And it's interesting. He goes both ways on that because we'll see later at the end of Acts where. He's told, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. You're going to die. And he says, well, he, he hugs them by, kisses their neck, cries, and they cry together. And then he goes on to Jerusalem. It's not like he runs to Damascus or somewhere else. I guess, there's no, I guess there was no other place to hide by that time. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he goes on. So there's, there's a balance, I think. There's a wisdom and discretion of what does God call me to do? Where, where do I need to go? Um, and so here he is... Um, He's escaping Damascus. All right. And where does he escape to? Let's see in verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem. Now I'm thinking, if I'm going to escape to safety, why would I go to Jerusalem? It's the last place they're going to look. It's <laughs> the last place they're going to look. All right. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. If you're going to go to Jerusalem, you want to hide out and be a place in a sanctuary with other believers who are going to take care of you, right? He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They didn't have email. They did not have email. You're right. Uh, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Because that's what you want to do when you want to lay low. <laughs> uh, but they were seeking to kill him. Didn't take them long. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. All right. So he moves on to Jerusalem to receive, a, to receive a happy welcome by the saints who are rejoicing at the grace of God in his life and his bold proclamation of the gospel he once hated. That's, that's what he's going down there, not so much, right? What's the initial reaction of the saints in Jerusalem? Fear. Fear. They go Ananias on him. They're afraid of this guy. What does that tell you? What does that tell you about? He used to be a bad dude. How persistent he was in his old ways of hunting down Christians that 
they had a hard time believing that he is turned from that. Maybe he was crafty in some of the ways he hunted them down. Maybe there was some deception involved and Mission Impossible stuff there, uh, getting, getting into their groups. Maybe. Maybe. That's, that's the indication that we get here is that they don't trust this. Maybe this is another ruse to out us and persecute us again. He's fleeing Damascus. He runs to Jerusalem for sanctuary with the saints. He attempts to join them, and then they don't believe him. This has got to be some trick to expose us. And, and in fairness to them, I mean, it was at the space of two to three years, right? I mean, it's a pretty quick turnaround. That's not, if you really wanted to get somebody, you could fake it for two years, I guess. Um, the basket thing lends credibility, but really is that, you know. The smart folks say that, uh, that these events happened between 33 AD and 35 AD. It may have been too soon since Stephen, I don't know. But what causes the change in the disciples there? Barnabas. Barnabas. Who was, who was Barnabas? The helper. The helper. <laughs> uh, son of encouragement? It was a nickname that he was given. By whom? Do you remember? Way back when? Chapter 4. He uh, was given the name Barnabas, son of encouragement, by the apostles themselves. Why do you think that, what does that tell you about his relationship with the apostles? He's close. They know Barnabas. They trust him. So much so that they give him a nickname. Um, as a result of Barnabas' assessment of Saul, the apostles accept Saul as a true convert. And how do we know that they do? How do we know that they do? What does it say? They start guarding him. They guard him? What else do they do? What does it say about Saul walking with them, his relationship with them? He walks in and out among them. Now, do you remember whenever they were choosing uh, a new apostle to replace Judas? One of the criteria in, 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 uh, in chapter 1 was that it had been somebody who had been with them the whole time Jesus had walked in and out among us. Right? So Luke uses the same language, the comfort that they had with Christ and the trust that they had with Christ, to say we, they trusted Him like they trusted Jesus at that point like they would any other brother is the idea because of his conversion that they so much saw the conversion of Saul that he identified with Christ that way that is a radical statement for a man who had been persecuting them for them to trust him like they would the other brothers like they would Christ um, and it's kind of important that they do this Why would they trust him? Or maybe a better question is, is it him that they really trust? No. Because he's, he's seen them preaching in the name. He turns around and continues to preach in the name of Jesus uh -huh. rather than the name of Paul. Right. He's preaching in the name of Christ rather than the name of Paul. <clears throat> Um, and at this time, Luke calls him Saul. We'll talk about that sometime, what's going on there. But uh, I, 
they have to really trust Christ on this one, don't they? You talk about sovereignty of God. You come to a point where we could continue to distrust his testimony, to distrust the, the testimony of Barnabas, but at this point, they're trusting Christ and that he really can change somebody. He really has radically changed this former terrorist. And it's crucial that they do because this is the step toward the unfolding mission of the church to the Gentiles. Paul is a crucial element to that mission. He's not going to be a maverick missionary. The Gentile converts are not going to be maverick Christians. There's continuity between Christ and the apostles, and the apostles' acceptance and approval of Paul provides continuity with his mission going out to the Gentiles. So it's crucial that they accept him if this thing is going to move forward. And this Jerusalem stint for Paul uh, also shows another thing. You, you see, again, further persecution of the former persecutor. If he was looking to lay low and regroup, he had a poor way of executing that plan. Who were the Hellenists? The Greek-speaking Jews. What's Paul's relationship to the Greek-speaking Jews, do you think, in Jerusalem? They're hunting him down. They weren't initially. He goes and talks to them. Where, what had he been? Had he had any kind of relationship with them before he went to Damascus? Who killed Stephen? Who brought the charges against Stephen? The Hellenistic Jews. He was really close with them. He's very close with them. In fact, he was probably one of them. He comes from Tarsus, which is a Greek-speaking city, a third. Uh, ranking third of, in learning in the, in the uh, Roman Empire under um, Athens and Alexandria. Tarsus was known as a center of learning, Greek uh, learning. So he probably identified with them. He probably hung out with them. They were probably some of his friends. Yeah? Are they, so are they, do they speak Greek as like a first language or is they just know Greek? Or? I, I'm assuming that it's, they know it. Okay. Um, I mean, if you're in Jerusalem, do as the Jerusalemites it do. Yeah, and, and it's part of you know, the common language of the empire so that they're, um, they're able to, to converse. But, but it also involves some cultural differences probably than they, your Judean... Did they worship Greek gods? Or? No, no, no. They were, they were zealous Jews, but they just had the cultural influences of, okay. of the Greek uh, learning and philosophy and rhetoric and all that they would have known. These are the same folks that saw that Saul worked with to persecute the church. And they, like the Damascus Jews, also sought to kill him. They were successful against Stephen. Maybe they can shut down Saul as well. Um, it's impressive that he would even go and speak to them. Yeah. It is, isn't it? That's not normal. You know what they did to Stephen... You know what you helped them do against Stephen. Why would you go to them? And you're trying to lay low. What does Luke demonstrate, though, by telling us this? What is he showing us? A changed heart. A changed heart. Paul has no fear. He's got no fear. And where does that come from? Holy Spirit. The, Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. Uh, it is the Holy Spirit working in... Yes. It's the Holy Spirit working in... The heart of Saul. It also shows his compassion and his belief that God can save anyone because God mm. 
uh, and, and we see that later, don't we, in his writing, and how he and how he um, and how he talks about his kinsmen according to the flesh. I have a quick question. Yes, ma'am. So these are different Hellenists than the ones they were talking about in chapter six, whenever they chose Stephen. Because weren't they? I thought those Hellenists were converts. Yes, there there are. That's a good question. There are there are two. I want to I say primarily mentioned in scripture. There are two kind of sections in Jerusalem. Two kind of groups in Jerusalem. There are the there are the the, the native Judean, born and bred in the confines of Israel, uh, who are Jews, and out of them come some Christians. So they're, they're the Jewish-speaking Christians. And then there are those who have been born abroad in Tarsus and you know other places, Damascus, other places. And they have Greek influence because of the way the culture was working at the time. That's where they learned. That's the language they spoke. There was an Old Testament that was translated in Greek to help you know deal that they could read from. They primarily spoke Greek there. So maybe they did, maybe they did speak Greek. Yeah, my, and what, my question is more like, were they like having Greek god idols or something? Oh, well, I, you know, I don't think so. Not, not these in Jerusalem. They're very zealous, nationalistic Jews. We get that impression. Um, but out of those Greek-speaking Jews come converts. So within the church then, in Jerusalem, you have Jewish-speaking and Greek-speaking Christians. And in the larger community, there's... Well, the, the church reflects the, the demographics of the city. So... So when he talks about Hellenists here, he's talking about non-believing okay. Jewish leaders who are Greek-speaking Jews. Okay, that's why I thought it was that same group that they were seeking to serve before. Out of that group came Christians, and they were seeking to serve, you know, the the Hel- the, the Greek-speaking widows right. that were being kind of lost. But um, but he's talking about here the general community. Okay. Uh, some of some of theorized that he actually went to the synagogue where Stephen was, you know, first preaching to the to the Hellenistic Jews there. May have been some of that going on. We don't know, but that's just a, a guess. Um, so we see from this Paul's authentic conversion. There was a rejection. Again, we'll see this again and again in Acts. There's a rejection of the gospel by a majority of the Jews, and that's a theme throughout Acts. And it's a theme that Paul... Again, displaying his heart for the Jewish nation shows us in Romans 9. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He, he's not looking to make a statement here. He's not looking to come in and say, yeah, I, and waltz on in like John Wayne or whatever. He has an anguish in his heart for these people, for his brothers according to the flesh. And he wants to see them come to Christ. But again, he's, he's under the death warrant here by the Hellenistic Jews. And so the church protects him, sends him to Tarsus, his hometown, and uh, we know later, uh, Paul tells us in Galatians one twenty one that he goes down to, to uh, Cilicia and Syria. And, and Tarsus actually is in Cilicia, Cilicia, 
I think that's how you say that. And it, it's under the administration of the Syrian province. So there's harmony there. I just want in case you read that elsewhere. And Wait, I thought he went down to Tarsus. That's what's going on there. And we're not told anything about what he does for the next about 10 years until Barnabas snatches him out of there and takes him to Antioch. These are called Saul's or Paul's uh, silent years. We don't really know much of what, what he's doing. I, I'm assuming uh, from some other stuff that he's making tents, but that's about it. We assume that he's still preaching, that he's still you know, sharing the gospel and learning, but there's really not, not much told to us. But something's going on in the church anyway. Look in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So Luke concludes Saul's conversion narrative and completes this whole persecution story that started in, in chapter 8. The church protects and whisks to safety the one who had formerly inflicted such terror on the church. Isn't that amazing? And how does Luke describe this period for the church? What does he say? Peace. How is this peace displayed? What, what's going on? How is it shown? What are its elements? The, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, is actually one that's used in the Old Testament a lot. It's used maybe twice here in Acts. Not used very often, but it's a reference to covenantal faithfulness. And he's using it here of the church after a time of persecution. Um, and then, and then what, what does that look like? And the comfort of the Holy Spirit, what is, the, what is going on? It says they're being built up. What does that mean? Growing in their knowledge, there's some internal buildup, maybe. In love, like uh, Ephesians says. In, in love, uh, being built up in the love of Christ for each other, for what's going on outside of the walls of the church, too. They're being built up uh, in their communion with one another. Building actual churches. Maybe they're doing some church planning. You know, maybe they're doing some of that. They've got a system. They've got plenty of white bases. Right, right. <laughs> their reverence and their worship increased. Their reverence and their worship increased. So we're seeing that because of the peace that they were given and their fear of God and their comfort in the Holy Spirit, their reverence and their worship are increased. So that's internal. And then it says something else. It multiplied. The growth in the knowledge of who Jesus is and what He has done causes worship, comfort, and a drive to make Him known. And that seems to be the standard pattern in Scripture, doesn't it? The Lord works on the behalf of His people in a time of crisis, and through His deliverance they find peace and continue to flourish. And that will continue until chapter 12, when a new persecution breaks out against them uh, under Herod. In a few minutes. Um, if we take a step back, and look at this whole account of the Jerusalem persecution, Saul's conversion, and the peace that they enjoyed here. What, what strikes you about that? What hits you? The sovereignty of God hits me. The sovereignty of God. Because Paul didn't choose. Christ hit him over the head, blinded him, changed him. Okay. And then um, his escape was very... He didn't die. He wasn't mauled. He wasn't imprisoned. 
but yeah. not yet. Not yet. And then he was accepted in the, into the midst of the disciples through the word of Barnabas mm -hmm. via the you know, Holy Spirit trusting mm -hmm. Christ in him. Right. So you see sovereignty of God in all of these actions, all of this stuff going on. What else do you see? I think it's cool in the, in the last verse. It seems like they have the right balance. Because fear and comfort to mm. me are like opposing things. Yeah. And so they're not emphasizing one aspect of God and leaving out another. They have a good understanding of um, his whole personhood. And so they see his sovereignty, but they're also resting in his comfort and love. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a growth in knowing the whole Jesus, yeah. not just emphasizing one or the other. You see more of a balance in yeah. understanding him, and that's being built up that way. That's and good. I think that's one of the reasons why the church was being multiplied, mm -hmm. because they did have the right understanding of him. A, a full-orbed understanding. Yeah. yeah, good, good. What else do you see? There's boldness here, too, on the preaching of the gospel. Okay, boldness. And it's like the, the power of the Holy Spirit cannot be stopped. Okay. Look at who God is using. Mm -hmm. the, the least prepared, <laughs> most hated. Right. Shortest. But he's the, I don't know, he's just... God has picked him for a reason. God has selected him mm. because of that. And, and you see that with the apostles too, right? I mean, yeah. Pe Peter. Right. The most impulsive. No, Lord. <laughs> he instructs Jesus. <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> you have uh, just an, an impulsive guy at the helm there uh, with Peter, and you have a, a former um, terrorist of the church now leading the, the charge to the Gentiles, coming up. Just for sake of time, anything, any, anyone else? Get, you know, when Paul came yeah. to Jerusalem and he tried to join the disciples, um, I was thinking that if Paul had just been a new person and didn't have the track record that he did, that the, that the uh, disciples would have been more willing to hear what he had to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the fact that he had a history and had wronged them mm -hmm. like he did, um, they weren't going to listen to him. Uh, but it took Barnabas, essentially a miracle from God, uh, revealing to Barnabas that Paul had been converted. Mm -hmm. uh, so it took somebody with a reputation like Barnabas had to convince them otherwise. Okay. I think it's interesting that when you look at this, um, the mission of the church is not affected by circumstances. Mm. Because they go through, because um, we kind of think in this day and age, oh, well, a church only grows under persecution. Mm -hmm. But that's not what's reported here. Right. They grew under persecution and they grew under peace. Right. And so it, it's interesting that they were steadfast in their love for Christ no matter what the circumstances right. were. Right. Good. I I found it really interesting that um, right after Paul or Saul was blinded, he said, "Go to the city, and you'll be told what you are to do." Mm -hmm. But then, when Ananias goes to him, um, well, 
God tells Ananias, I will show him all how much he must suffer mm-hmm. for the sake of my name. Mm-hmm. I just think that's got to be a lot of the reason why Saul had so much boldness because <clears throat> he didn't, he knew there wasn't another way out. Yeah, just embrace it and move. So I think that's why he was able to be so, so bold all the time. Yeah, that's probably some of that, I'm sure. Yes, sir. Uh, would it be fair to say that Barnabas is acting Christ-like in a way, mm. like Jesus is our mediator to the Father, mm-hmm. and he acts sort of as a mediator between Saul and the church. Yeah. Kind yeah. of like a little Christ. Yeah. He, well, you mean a Christian? Um, he, is a, he is a minister of reconciliation right? That's what he's doing. He's taking a man who had hurt. There were people in that congregation who had family members who are now gone because of what Saul had done. And so he takes and encourages the leadership, the apostles, to recognize a brother and and to trust that Christ really does change hearts. And Peter should know this, right? They should all know this. But it's human nature, I think, to want to do a self-preservation thing against somebody who's hurt you, right? What, and what strikes me here is just the care that the Lord has for His people through all of this, and in such amazing ways. Uh, I bet, again, I bet they never would have imagined that Saul would convert. I mean, think about that. On the front page of the Jerusalem Post... Former persecutor, now persecuted. Former persecutor claims son of God has come. Right? I bet that was something that was not in their wheelhouse. And, 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 I'm, and we know that because of their reaction to him initially. Right? How they responded. So I, I bet they never would have imagined after Stephen was stoned and after all this stuff was going on, another period of relative peace. I bet they never imagined that they would see their numbers increase, their growth in the fear of the Lord, or the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Yet Christ was gracious to them in all of that. He loves His church. And these periods of rest are a taste of the coming day when the church will be at rest eternally with Christ. It's not the norm here. It's not normal to be at rest in the church. But Christ in His grace gives us these periods. Some are longer than others. Disney World in America being one of them. But it's not normal. But in the midst of all of it, as Tammy brought out earlier, He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In whatever circumstance... We have peace with God through Christ. And we can rest in that. He says, not like the world gives. Peace, not like the world gives. How does the world give peace? It doesn't. It works against you. Okay. How do people, how do people mend fences in the world? What do you do? Fine. It always costs something. It costs something. In what way? 
Give us an example. If, you know, if two countries want peace, there's generally, you give me this, I'll give you this, and we won't kill each other for there's, a period of time. There's wheeling and dealing. And it's also a lot of times temporary. And it's, and it's, and it's a tentative peace out of compromise. And even then you still got to keep one eye open. Mm -hmm. And even then you got to keep one eye open. So you either submit to a more powerful army or you cut a deal where you both kind of maintain some kind of peace. But when Jesus says, I don't give it to you like the world, what is he talking about? How does he give peace? He shows up with his 10,000 legions of angels and says, okay, here's, here's peace. Right? No. Salvation after death? After his death, right? He lays down, even he has the vastly superior army and could demand a deal, he lays down himself for his church, for his people. And because of his intention and his love displayed in the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, because of his peace that's displayed there, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled when you see all the whirling mess around you. Don't be afraid. Fear the Lord. Be in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Be built up and multiply. That's his peace. And that's what we see here with these guys. They're resting in the peace that Christ has given them after this shocking to them period of persecution but it gets worse and we'll see how they respond to it later on anything else any other comments questions fruit to be thrown all right well let's pray Father, it's not um, would not be shocking to know that in a group this size that there are those who are going through things where they need to rest in your peace. We live in a chaotic, fallen world. And whether it's through Decisions that we have made or decisions made by others against us or just the common cruddiness of life sometimes. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, embolden us to fear God and rest in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Would you give us peace? Thank you for making your peace known to us by means of the cross that we can rest in the hope of the resurrection, that we can be confident in the fact of the ascension, that Christ sits at the right hand of God the Father, and that because He rules and reigns everything, crazy things like Saul the terrorist convert. Lord, I guarantee you, and you can guarantee me, and we know for certain, that there are people in each of our lives that we would think would never convert that would never swear allegiance to Christ. I'm thinking of those in my own family right now. Would you be gracious 
to us, to them, by calling them to yourself and being merciful. If you don't act, they perish. And so we ask you to work in our midst, among our families, among our friends, that, that we see now as being in total rebellion against Jesus. Would you give your peace to them? Father, would you make us aware of ways that we can encourage one another, that we can be sons and daughters of encouragement to the body of Christ as we minister to needs, as we um, proclaim the gospel to each other, remembering that in this world we're still going to sin. It's going to happen. And yet you, in your great grace, have given us your Holy Spirit to fight the remaining sin in our own hearts. God, don't let us give up on that. Make it a zealous decision with us every morning to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we thank you that we have the holiness of Christ imputed to us, that we don't have to work for it. But out of a heart that loves you, we want to look like Jesus more and more every day, individually and as a body. So we pray for your grace in that area. We pray for wisdom and discernment and how to do that better. I thank you for this group. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church that you have given us to come here and to learn of you. I pray that your spirit would continue to work in us, that you'd be with Philip in the next service, that he would utter what you would want him to speak, and that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. One more announcement. For the girls, this Thursday, I believe, yeah, this Thursday, 